0: Welcome to Counter Apologetics. <laughs> Welcome to Counter-Apologetics, I'm your host, Emerson Green, and today we'll be discussing Why I Am Not a Christian, by Bertrand Russell. In 1927, one of my favorite philosophers, Bertrand Russell, delivered a famous address that would go on to become a book on yourself that you've been really meaning to get around to sometime. Originally published as a pamphlet, a few countries banned the work, and Russell was later denied a position at City College of New York for his atheism and political views. New York State Senator John Dunnigan denounced Russell's appointment as an example of the quote, ungodly and un-American ways of those in charge of the educational system. Why I Am Not a Christian is Russell's essay-long answer to one of the most important questions we can ask ourselves. So consider this a sort of big-picture episode, rather than the usual format where we hone in on one narrow issue in apologetics. what is a Christian? Russell begins by attempting to define Christian, which is more difficult than it would be if Christianity were true. He reminds us that in the days of Augustine or Aquinas, being a Christian meant you quote, accepted a whole collection of creeds which were set out with great precision, which were not optional, and most likely had to reflect your sincerely held convictions. One of the world's most prominent Christian intellectuals today, Jordan Peterson, hardly fits the definition of Christian that would have been required by Augustine or Aquinas. Then again, neither would many if not most of today's Christians. Establishing the criteria for being a real Christian has not been settled in the 2,000-year history of Christianity, which, common to the history of all religions, has been characterized by endless fracturing and splintering, with the number of incompatible denominations multiplying as time went on. While science. Converges on the same answer over time, regardless of geography and culture, religion splits off into more and more denominations. As No Illusions puts it, you can't get closer to something that doesn't exist. Nevertheless, we need a working definition of Christian, and Russell settles on the following A. You must believe in God. B. You must believe in immortality. And since we're talking about being a Christian and not just a theist, C you must have some kind of belief about Christ. If he was not divine, then he was at least the wisest and best of men. This is the kind of Christian that Russell is not. Belief in God, immortality, and the divinity or the moral perfection of Christ. Quote, If you're not going to believe that much about Christ, I don't think you have any right to call yourself a Christian. the first cause argument. So there's a family of first cause arguments. Today we mostly hear the Kalam Cosmological Argument, which was popularized in the Christian world by William Lane Craig in the 1970s and 80s. As Russell describes it, the first cause argument goes, everything we see in this world has a cause, and as you go back in the chain of causes further and further, you must come to a first cause, and to that first cause you give the name of God. End quote. He first points out that causation is not as straightforward as you might think before you put the concept under a microscope. Philosophers and scientists, over the last few centuries, have uprooted our intuitive Aristotelian notions of cause. To quote Sean Carroll, The idea that our intuitions about cause and effect should be extended without modification to the fundamental nature of reality is fairly absurd. End quote. Even if we bracket our concerns over the nature of causation, Russell contends that the first cause argument still fails. When I was a young man, and was debating these questions very seriously in my mind, I for a long time accepted the argument of the first cause, until one day, at the age of 18, I read John Stuart Mill's autobiography, and I there found this sentence. My father taught me that the question who made me cannot be answered, since it immediately suggests the further question, who made God. If everything must have a cause, then God must have a cause. End quote. Who made God has been disparaged by apologists as an unsophisticated objection, but I think some of them don't realize that it's just a rhetorical question intended to point out the special pleading involved in their reasoning. Russell was clear. If everything must have a cause, then God must have a cause. If you're establishing the principle, everything must have a cause, then that must also apply to God, or everything must have a cause, is false. And most savvy apologists today would no longer sign on to the premise everything must have a cause. They would instead say something like everything that begins to exist must have a cause. As Carol reminded us, though, our everyday intuitions shouldn't be extended without modification to fundamental physics. So even if we accept that everything that begins to exist in the universe has a cause, that doesn't mean that the universe itself has a cause. What's true of everything within a set is not necessarily true of the set itself. For example, every cat has a mother, but that doesn't mean a herd of cats has a mother. As an aside, who created God can be posed in the context of design as well, where it is a much more powerful objection than in the context of ultimate causes, and we'll come back to that later. Who made God in the context of the first cause argument, is only intended to demonstrate the premise everything must have a cause to be false, as I think most apologists today would recognize. But once we've all acknowledged that there can be something without a cause, you have to make additional arguments that God is the thing that exists without a cause, rather than just the universe or physical energy. Just because we've agreed that there is something without a cause doesn't mean that God has to be that thing. If there can be anything without a cause, it may just as well be the world as God, so that there cannot be any validity in that argument. It is exactly of the same nature as the Hindus view that the world rested upon an elephant and the elephant rested upon a tortoise. And when they said, how about the tortoise? The Indian said, suppose we change the subject. The argument is really no better than that. So to many Christian apologists, God is the tortoise upon which everything ultimately rests, and the universe would be the elephant, standing on top of the tortoise. Theists are basically saying that it would be ridiculous to believe that things ended with the elephant. It's only rational to believe that the elephant is resting on a tortoise. The difference is that the tortoise is a necessary tortoise, while the elephant is not a necessary elephant. If their point is that something must be necessary, something must be a brute fact, then I would agree though it obviously doesn't have to be anything like us, for example, a god. In fact, many would say it's a strike against a theory, given scientific history thus far, to postulate anything anthropocentric or anti-Copernican. Arguing that a personal god with a human face is at the bottom of it all strikes me as geocentrism on a cosmic scale. The pattern would seem to be that anyone who bets on the specialness of humans loses. There must always have been something rather than nothing, whether that something was God or the universe or some other elemental basic somethingness. There never was truly nothing, or else there would still be nothing. Well, still be nothing, but you know what I mean. For anything to be now, there must be at least one brute fact. This is totally unavoidable for theists and non theists alike. No one gets out of this problem so you have to figure out which fact or facts should be designated brute. I think somethingness, or maybe energy, is a brute fact. Christians believe a jealous, disembodied mind with free will and a gender is a brute fact. As Russell puts it, If there can be anything without a cause, it may just as well be the world as God. The Natural Law Argument Simply put, the natural law argument goes, the universe obeys laws, therefore there must be a lawgiver, or lawmaker, or law enforcer. Russell responds to this argument, The whole idea that natural laws imply a lawgiver is due to a confusion between natural and human laws. Human laws are behests commanding you to behave a certain way, in which you may choose to behave, or you may choose not to behave. But natural laws are a description of how things do in fact behave. And being a mere description of what they in fact do, you cannot argue that there must be somebody who told them to do that. End quote. So believers are equivocating between two different senses of the word law throughout the course of the argument. Natural laws and human laws are not the same. Human laws are behests commanding you to behave a certain way, and they are separate from you. They don't necessarily describe your behavior. Natural laws are a description of our observation, how things do in fact behave. In their discussion of laws requiring a lawgiver, believers often make the mistake of separatism, as the philosopher Galen Strawston has called it. There's no fundamental distinction between objects on the one hand and their properties or behavior on the other. Objects aren't governed by laws of nature ontologically distinct from the objects. An interesting thing about scientific laws is that, uh, you know, we say the universe complies with them, but we don't know what enforces the compliance. Uh, You know, you see, that's the language you used earlier, which I completely reject. (laughs) Terrible, terrible. I call it separatism. This terrible picture. Here's matter sitting around, and uh, as it were, God made that, and now he thinks, hmm, what law shall I make it obeys? And then he clunks on the laws on top and now makes them, uh, it's, it's constitutive of the very being or nature of the matter. The law, you don't need to add laws. It's just right. given the nature of the stuff, they behave as they do. I have to say, one of the people who's really good about this is Nietzsche. Uh, brilliant. Quite brilliant. There are no separately existing things, called laws on the one hand, that act on this other stuff. They're one and the same. There is no real separation between nature and natural law as there can be with humans and human law once this equivocation has been cleared up a believer might still insist that god gave matter its nature but god is superfluous as an explanation here and it only moves the problem one step back from matter to god and as russell pointed out this move opens them up to a line of questioning about why god chose these laws instead of some others did he choose these laws for no reason at all or was there a reason? Quote, If you say, as more orthodox theologians do, that in all the laws which God issues, he had a reason for giving those laws rather than others, the reason, of course, being to create the best universe, although you would never think it to look at it, if there was a reason for the laws which God gave, then God himself was subject to law, and therefore you do not get any advantage by introducing God as an intermediary. You have really a law outside and anterior to the divine edicts. and God does not serve your purpose, because He is not the ultimate lawgiver. End quote. So the believer has to answer a euthyphro-style dilemma, wherein God is either not the ultimate lawgiver, in which case he's superfluous as an explanation, or he just chooses laws at random, which means you've explained nothing. And added a metric ton of metaphysical baggage for absolutely no reason. An apologist might resist and say that God's decisions are not random, but flow from his nature. But this just demonstrates that they didn't understand the dilemma to begin with, since this is merely a restatement of the original problem. No matter which option you take, God had a reason or he had no reason, slash God's nature is this way for a reason or for no reason, there is no advantage to postulating a god. God's nature is subject to the same analysis as the nature of matter. That's all I have for you today. If you haven't yet, subscribe on YouTube if you would, that would be a huge help. And feel free to upvote my antinatalism video. I did not know that anti-natalism is like a community, and they're very touchy. They do not like to be criticized. Even though I do have to give a shout out to Steve Godfrey on Twitter. He's the only antinatalist who reached out with some criticism that was coherent and thoughtful. Anyway, like I said, I didn't realize that antinatalism was like an online community, but a lot of them found my episode from WaldenPod, and they did not like it. I'm sure there are some antinatalists in my audience seems pretty popular among atheists, but I had no idea that antinatalism was also an online community that appears to actively seek out anyone who criticizes antinatalism. I don't feel like I misrepresented the position or was disrespectful, but they seem to think so. And speaking of Twitter, I actually just made one a few weeks ago, so if you want to go follow at WaldenPod, that would also be a huge help. There are a few thousand subscribers to the podcast, but having a decent Twitter or YouTube profile makes it a lot easier to reach out to guests, so thank you in advance for that. I have two new patrons to thank, Nemo Utopian and Andromeda Kumar. Thank you, Nemo Utopian, and thank you, Andromeda. And thanks, of course, to my Hall of Fame patrons, Jesta, Phil Stilwell, Richard Crossan, Pre-Nifty, and Rory B. Murkowski. And you can support this show on a per-episode basis at patreon.com counter where you can earn early access to every episode and access to bonus episodes. If you don't have the money to support on Patreon but you were lucky enough to be born by chance into the one true religion, you can add me on Facebook, leave a five-star review, or tell your friends about the podcast. You can also subscribe to and review our sister show, Walden Pod. Our theme music was written and performed by the band Wailers. The song is called Magic Tricks and was used with permission. Thank you for joining me today. I've been Emerson Green, and I'll talk to you next time.